Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast with Andrew Teacher and I'm joined by Geeta Nanda who is the boss of Metropolitan Thames Valley, one of the country's biggest housing associations. Geeta, good to see you back. Now you joined what was Thames Valley at the time back in 2008, conveniently just in time for the global financial crisis. We're not quite in that space now, thankfully. But as we move into 2023 and we get settled, how are you seeing the market over the next 12 months? Is there some similarity to the situation you faced when you originally joined the TV of MTVH? Yeah, you're reminding me of those times now, Andrew. It was, you know, that was an incredibly difficult time because everything moved so fast and it was so furious. And, you know, we had to do a huge amount of cutting back and thinking about our sort of delivery programme very, very quickly. And we've got a very different situation now. So, you know, whilst we've seen the sort of cost of borrowing go up and some nervousness, yeah, absolutely, in the market, we're not seeing the conditions that there were before. And of course, the cost of living crisis is a very different crisis to the sort of financial crisis that we had in 2018. So in a way, it's much broader this time around. It's impacting all our residents in a way they weren't impacted in 2008. So it's a much broader crisis, not so much a financial crisis as last time. And on the financing side, most of your debt is secured through the bond markets. What's the average maturity of outstanding debt? Yeah, we've got a selection of debts. We've got debt through the bond market, but also, you know, bank debt. You know, we've been supported by quite a few banks over the years with long-term financing. So it's up to 40 years, some of it, Andrew. So we've got some long, long-term debt, but it yeah. varies from short-term two years, up one-year debt, right up to, you know, 40 years, some very, very long-standing debt. But, you know, it's because we want to carry on building new homes, mm. we think that's important. We are going to be securing new debt going forward and the cost of buying things and building things has gone up a lot. So, of course, that cost of borrowing is going up and that is impacting on us. Yeah, but I suppose that the interesting point is that as organisations, housing associations typically would tend to have a lower cost of finance than a comparable privately owned developer. Yeah, I mean, as we go to the market... When we borrow in the capital markets and our rating is, you know, we're well rated as organisations because there is an element of support, government support, which is considered by those agencies. So, you know, our cost of borrowing isn't as high as if you're doing project finance, really, through a bank for yeah, a particular yeah. book. So it is lower, but it's not as low as getting money through the Public Works Loan Board or something like that. No, I mean, we'll come on to it in a second because you've been doing quite a lot of different joint ventures with various parts of the private and public sector on different elements of your housing offer. Is there a degree to which the ratings agencies don't really understand what you do and aren't particularly fair in how they price it or measure that risk or report the risk? Yeah, I think, I mean, the ratings agencies look at risk. You know, anything where there is risk is or perceived risk. Or I mean, you say they, yeah. they, 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 they... I mean, we have been selling properties and doing shared ownership for a long time, but all that sales risk is counted as a risk, whereas we do know what we're doing. We do have um, an element of other income other than social housing income. And that doesn't really get taken account of through the ratings agencies. They're comfortable with how they assess us. But we think actually, you know, a lot of the banks are more sophisticated. They kind of understand our business models very well. Mm. And it's not been a particularly great decade for ratings agencies for all sorts of reasons, isn't it? But let's move on from that. I don't want to get 
bogged down talking about ratings agencies. <laughs> but let's talk about instead some of the joint ventures that you've been doing in recent years. And one of the big focuses for you that was announced just before Christmas, the end of last year, was a joint venture with Legal and General focusing on shared ownership. And we've talked about this before, that shared ownership is perceived as a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Some people see it as the sort of saviour to filling particular parts of the market, particularly with help to buy disappearing. And other people, certainly producers of programmes like Panorama, see it as not a particularly good thing at all. What's the honest yeah, answer I mean, to that? Shared ownership is a wonderful way for people who often don't have parental support, don't have big deposits, to be able to have a secure home. And at the moment, as we can see, the private rental sector is mad. You know, so a lot of people are paying big rents in the private rental sector. They're competing with seven or eight people to rent somewhere. Rents are going up astronomically mm. and they don't have the security. They don't know how long they're going to be in their home. And when you look at shared ownership, you can get shared ownership for cheaper than a market rent. The deposits that you need are lower because the percentage you get is lower. But you do have to understand that there are other costs and those costs do increase. So, you know, the ideal way of entering shared ownership is, you know, when you are earning, you know, not to your full potential, but have a way to go. But you can't get any sort of security and you can have a shared ownership home. And it's, a, you know, these are great buildings and great homes and great places. But if you were to stay in shared ownership for 20 years because you have no other option, then that's a different proposition. So I think what we are beginning to see are those people who come in and you know exit after six, seven years, shared ownership, and it's been a wonderful mm. stepping stone. And then there are other people who feel trapped because they haven't been able to move on and move out. They don't have other options. And, you know, some people accept it, that it's still their home and it means they can still stay in. And other people feel that, you know, they should have more support. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons there is that controversy really is because some people stay in it for a short period of time and other people are in it for a long time. Mm. I mean, I've always thought it's a great solution fundamentally because it enables hardworking people that perhaps don't earn a huge amount of money to have that security of tenure and to have a stake in society and all of the social and non-economic benefits that come with that. There are many societal benefits that come with just not having to move your kids out of school every five minutes. Yeah, and what we're seeing at the moment is around 20% of the people who are buying our shared ownership at the moment would have bought outright, but because the mortgage market has shifted and it's costing you know, a lot more for them to get a mortgage, they can no longer afford to buy that home outright. So they still want to buy and they're buying shared ownership. And, you know, that otherwise, what would happen to those people? If there wasn't such a product, they wouldn't be able to buy at all. So mm. it's not the total solution. We need all 10 years, you know, we need people to be able to buy outright, we need social rent, you know, we need those intermediate rents as well. But shared ownership is a great way, as you say, for people to have stability, to be able to own and to be able to live in that property and feel secure. Do you think the political class understands that shared ownership really is the only game in town with help to buy being taken away if you want to put working people into homes that they can own without making them take on huge unholy amounts of risk? Well, I think the fact that there is more shared ownership now, I mean, it was always, I remember years ago when I first 
you know, worked in housing, people used to say, what is shared ownership? And they always thought it was, you know, you shared a room with somebody or you had to share a house with someone. And <laughs> there are all those campaigns that say you don't do that. Now it's quite a well-known... It's called co-living. I mean. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the you know. But now everybody understands what shared ownership's about. People kind of get it and they look into it and either it's for them or not for them. So I think there's a broader understanding of what it's about and it does allow, you know, to get people off the waiting list and people into homes. Yeah. But I think it could be a tenure, which is much broader than it is at the moment, more of it and more of a secondary market. And the more there is, then the more acceptable it becomes. So I think it's still in its infancy. Mm. It's gaining ground, but there's a long way to go. Well, it's certainly gaining more popularity with institutional investors. So when you partner with Legal in general, we had Andy Hume, boss of Hyde on end of last summer, and they had done a similar sort of deal with M&G Real Estate. That's right, yeah. So talk us through the deal with L&G. So it's a 50-50 joint venture. You're targeting the delivery of 2,500 homes. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely the right time, as we've talked about before, help to buy is gone going. And what is the alternative for people who don't have the money to be able to buy outright? Who does? I mean, you know, the sums are huge. So this is really, as you said, it's a 50-50 joint venture, you know, targeting 500 homes upwards a year. And with an incredibly reputable partner who has a real stake in housing and really believes in housing and believes in the value and the social value of housing. And those are the sorts of partners, as you said, you know, M&G, L&G, that are getting back in the game. And that's really good. So we don't have to always be the investor. You know, we can sometimes be the manager. We can co-invest or we can use our expertise in the market, which is very long-standing to work with that private capital that's coming in. Mm. And in terms of other potential JVs that you would consider over the next couple of years, what other areas might you do that in? You've presumably got quite a good pipeline of land and other assets that could be ripe for refurbishment, repositioning over the next few years. Yeah, so I think, you know, the key areas, Andy, are really regeneration. There's a lot of talk about existing homes at the moment and the quality of homes. And regeneration is a wonderful way to both build new homes where those properties are end of life and to also do an uplift and if you think of retrofitting improving the quality of the homes as well so you know regeneration is a big area where we always look for partners to bring their commercial expertise in market sale you know where our partners have a strong brand and you know we want some sort of mixed tenure looking there and then If we sort of think about our sort of care and support sector, I think that's another area Mm. where potentially we will be able to look at sort of investment and how we can bring investment into that in a safe way. And what role does that area need to occupy? So when I'm talking about supported living or less supported living, I mean, let's break down just for listeners' benefit those different sets of jargon because... There are different things that sometimes overlap, aren't there? There's supported living, which would look after, for example, adults that may have special needs. There's, I suppose, depending on who you're speaking to, what might be regarded as senior living, later living, elderly care and housing for older people. But ultimately, one of the big challenges that I see when you're thinking about NHS and bed blocking is there is a lack of housing to accommodate people that might have mild or medium or high levels of care needs. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, no one's cracked it, has it? You know, social care always gets left behind because it almost feels like it's in the too difficult pile. But I think... I mean, do housing associations need to be more visible in this space and be putting their hands up and saying, hey... Mr. NHS, Mrs. NHS, we could be a solution to some of these problems. Yeah, and I think we do. And a lot of the NHS Trust said if I could, I would give some of our money to social care so I could release bed spaces in my hospitals. You know, I would do that. I think it's ring-fenced, so they're not allowed to do that. There isn't an overlap between social care and health. There's a lot of talk about Mm. that. So would you welcome a conversation with the health secretary, with NHS bosses, to help understand the role that housing associations could play in proactively helping unblock beds? Yes, sometimes what's needed is very small. And what we found through COVID was there was a lot more discussion between health and housing. And we could put some solutions in place to help because it was such a crisis, it was such a critical time. You know, and sometimes it is literally support for a short period of time that can be given to people. And local authorities are key as well as part of this. But it has to be paid for. And I think everybody wants to do it on the cheap and it can't be done on the cheap. There is a need. It's cheaper to get people out of hospital and get them back into homes. Sometimes it doesn't cost a lot of money, but it's almost a real understanding of how much it's going to cost and who's going to pay and how is it going to be developed. And, and when and are they going think, to pay? Yeah, think- and some of these things shouldn't be difficult. You know, building more properties that are the right properties for intensive care takes a long time. But there are plenty of things that we can do with existing properties and where existing residents are stuck in hospitals as Mm. well. But if you create housing and provide the service that stops people falling down the stairs in the first place, then the housing they need after a hip replacement is cheaper. Yeah, and so this brings me to the fact that housing is a new housing is always discussed in terms of planning, really, and, you know, community support. But housing is a force for good and we need to talk about housing as a force for good because by providing good quality housing which you know meets people's needs you just save so much money for other industries mm. you know you save health you save money for education you know you give people a better start in life it touches everything that people do so we should be proud of building more homes you know we should be proud of a desire to build more homes we shouldn't just have this as something which is argued about and targeted in a way Hmm. so you know let's talk it up and let's talk about the benefits of what it's it's still quite contentious though isn't it creating these big regeneration schemes particularly where you're having to decant people out of homes they've perhaps lived in for decades to redevelop them into new improved homes or estates with high density and one of the things that you've done very successfully in the last couple of years was a residence ballot that approved a regeneration scheme at Restort Gardens and Mills Grove up in Barnet in North London, where you were replacing a 1960s estate with 251 affordable new homes. To what degree could that way of doing things be rolled out nationally? And would it deal and neutralise some of the aggravation that developers and investors have had in this space i'm thinking particularly the lend lease fallout in harringay in another part of north london a few years back where they basically got booted out of of this huge regeneration scheme that had been worked on for years and it comes up again and again doesn't it where you know on one side of the fence you'll have the investor saying well i can only afford to do this viability assessment says blah 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 the residents say well hang on a second why are you sending me to ipswich and someone else says well hang on the computer says this and there is a trade-off isn't there really between 
the financial and economic reality of a particular scheme and someone that perhaps has been living on a relative discount for some time being told they've got to start paying the market. Yeah, I mean, there is. You're absolutely right. But unless you get the residents on side, then regeneration gets a bad name because it's just seen as improving an area and bringing people in who've got more money mm. and existing residents not getting anything out of it. Now, they may not own their homes, but they've got a stake in that community and they are the community and they should have a say in what goes on and they should have a benefit that comes out of any regeneration of an area. So it's absolutely right that residents have that. But also, you know, some of the rules around regeneration and what you can get money for and what you can't are crazy. You know, we've got to look at the fact that if we're regenerating an area, we've got to look at retrofitting as well. We've got to look at, you know, embedded carbon, all of these things. That's a much broader conversation. And should you only get money in a grant perspective just for new homes or additional homes or is it existing homes that we should be able to get money for? So sometimes we need to think about how we finance these transactions in a different world now where there are some broader issues that we need to solve as part of it. Otherwise, we're just going to keep going backwards all the time. We're going to keep going back to existing properties where we think we've dealt with things. And, you know, 10 years later, we're going to have to do a whole load of more things to it. So the grant system needs to be expanded to really focus on retrofit. I think it does. I think we need to say what is a good home, what is a good community, And, you know, what is the funding that's needed rather than just sliced it into different pockets? So, you know, I think there can be some broader conversations around what's the money that's required? What can different parties bring to the table? And good political leadership. We can see where there is strong local political leadership. You get some amazing and really good regeneration. And some local authorities have really led the way. So, you know, it's possible. We just need to sort of look at what are all the rules that are stopping us doing this? What's the market like? So where the market is strong, you know, it can support things. And when the market's weak, should we stop? We shouldn't stop. We just need to relook at it and think about Mm. how we can carry on in a different economic environment. And what would you like to see nationally? Because housing, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to have been on the agendas. It's certainly not been in the speeches of either of the two main political leaders. And as we look towards an uncertain future in a minute for the current government, what do you think needs to happen to make housing a vote winner or to make it at least something that politicians want to talk about? Because neither Labour or the Tories want to do so in a minute. Yeah, and it should be talked about because whenever you talk to any MPs, they say the biggest thing they have in their mailbag is around housing, people not being able to access housing or people's housing conditions. And when you look at those Mori polls that go out, there is actually nationwide support for new housing. But that doesn't seem to have filtered through. And so I think we need to talk about the positives of housing, the positives for people's lives, the positives for the economy, the positives for the future of the country, rather than all the negatives that there are. And I think if actually politically we get that as part of the campaign, that new housing, good quality housing, improving housing, improving the environment, improving the conditions for people to be in is a good thing for the country. And then I think there will be support for it. And a few celebrities saying the same thing wouldn't help. (laughs) Maybe that is the way it needs to go. I mean, I've long said that this conversation is one that needs to be had directly with consumers. I think it's now starting to happen a little bit more. But I think one of the problems with your sector is spends too much time talking to itself. And unless you make things a vote loser, mm. stuff doesn't change. 
let's talk about something else that's a little bit controversial and that's migration and now metropolitan Thames valley has a migration foundation which to my knowledge it's the only fund set up tackling migration destitution that caters for refugees and asylum seekers and plays very much to the original dna of metropolitan going back to when it was set up in the 60s yeah absolutely and there was also a number of mergers and Refugee Housing Association was a merger with Metropolitan many years ago. And as part of that, there was a separate fund set up, and that was really to work with destitute migrants. And it's incredible because what we can do is we can do this outside of government funding streams. So we can try new things and we can showcase how it can work and how we can really support people to integrate into the community. Their stories are amazing. The willpower and the desire to work and pay back to this country is amazing. And it's one of the things that I'm most proud of in terms of what we do is to take people who are destitute, that don't have anything, help them with their accommodation, but also help them move on and work. And, you know, a few of them have come back and worked for us and work with other refugees as well. And actually, there's a huge amount of goodwill from a lot of different organisations in the community. So, for example, you know, supermarkets who give free food because there's no money given. So this is all our own money or money that we can bring in. And so, you know, we get supermarkets that give us free food that we can use for these residents. And, you know, sometimes they're not able to stay and they do have to return. And actually they need that support then when they do have to return and they can't stay in this country. Mm. And after everything they've gone through. So we're there to support people who can stay and help them on their way, but also to support those who do have to return as well. What do we need to do to make this whole topic a bit more palatable to policymakers? Because again, it just appears to me, I mean, speaking, I'm Jewish, so my grandparents flew the Holocaust. And where were your grandparents? Yeah, so India and then Kenya, and they lost their homes through the partition and then they went on to make a new life in Africa and then they came here. So they've moved around a lot, you know, and seen a lot. Yeah, my grandparents are Russian and Polish and so it sounds like neither of us, Gita, would be allowed into Britain today. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't get visas. We could always apply, eh? <laughs> I'm not high-skilled enough, you would be No, fine. definitely not. <laughs> but How do we make compassion a vote with? I think there question. was a lot of compassion with the Ukrainian refugees. There was a lot of compassion there. But when it comes to now housing, so lots of people were, you know, obviously supported by other people in their own homes, but that only lasts a period of time and people are moving on. So now it's the crunch time, obviously, for Afghan refugees that have been in hotels for a long time and Ukrainians. What we do is tiny compared to what's needed and we can replicate it. But actually, it's not just the housing, but it's the support people need coming into a new country and getting qualifications, retraining in terms of what they do. But it's wonderful, the energy that people have and the desire to do well is phenomenal. You must know that from your parents. I know it from mine. You know, they just will do anything to have a good life and to make sure that their children have a good life. So it's the success stories of these migrants and refugees and what they've achieved against the odds and it's those stories we need to get out. It's that which will change people's opinions. And how can other property folk who might be listening to this get involved with 
the Migration Foundation? Where do they go to? to Well, they can contact us. You know, we're always keen to talk to anybody who wants to help. We want to supply more housing. And we also work with a lot of small organisations who have funding difficulties, who we help fund, who give that support. So we don't do it all ourselves. There's a big network of organisations who support migrants, refugees. That's really fascinating. Let's come on to one final issue. We've talked about building safety quite a lot in the past. Actually, two more things I want to ask. I'll ask you about this. What still needs to happen around the building safety debate? What, from your perspective, when you're talking to your board and your colleagues and other stakeholders, where are we now at in this whole Yeah, saga? we're still wading through it, Andrew. There's still treacle. We're still wading through it and there's still a long way to go. But there is a new building regulator, you know, there is new acts that are coming into play. But we have to go back to the what makes a safe building and is this building safe? And in a way, the requirements get it's layered. It's pretty bloody obvious, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, exactly. But that was always the case. It was always about what makes a building safe, but it's got bogged down into the minutiae of all the things that need to be done rather than to meet this act or this regulation, et cetera, rather than what is this building? What needs to make it safe? Who lives in it? How do we make sure they're safe? And so I think whilst we're going through all the requirements of the remediation, obviously we need to make sure nothing gets built that, you know, comes this way again. But we've got to go back to this is a building in this location with these residents. What needs to make it safe? And that's going to be different things. You know, it could Mm. be a sprinkler system. It could be not housing people in certain buildings or on the ground floor or, you know, there are certain things that need to be done, but almost there's so much that we have to work through in terms of tick boxes and legislation and requirements that you have to stand back a bit and say, what makes this building safe? Mm. And going back to where we began the conversation, the cost of living crisis, a lot of people are warning that homelessness is going to shoot back over the next year or two, given it declined, relatively speaking, during COVID. Again, similar to the debate around migrants, really. What can housing associations do here? And what does wider society need to action to achieve some sort of improvement? Because it's just pretty disgusting that in 2023, we've still got homelessness on the scale that we presently do. Yeah, and it improved so much, didn't it? You know, COVID and the crisis meant that there was a huge amount of work done to get people off the streets. Now, there's a lot of homelessness which is hidden. And of course, we need more affordable homes in order to deal with that. So we need to build more homes. Absolutely, always is my number one statement. But, you know, Housing First, all these initiatives to get people into housing and then deal with their multiple support needs so that they can retain their tenancies is how we deal with it. And it's been done time and time again in many cities, in many areas. So it's the will to do it, it's the money to do it, and it's the support to do it. Mm. I mean, is there one or two initiatives in other cities that you could cite as being exemplars, things that we could hold up and say, why don't we do it like that? Yeah, I mean, there are housing first initiatives where they have and taken people this is people where you off. focus first on housing irrespective of any... That's right. You get people off the streets and into housing. And then you deal with drug problems, and you, anything else. And as part of it, you make sure that you're dealing with all their complex problems. And that means, obviously, people can't go often straight into having their own tenancy because they won't be able to 
retain that tenancy. There needs to be thought about what their different support needs are and how that's going to be provided for. That may be hostel accommodation first. We've got so many hostels where it's sorted up because there isn't anywhere for people to move on to mm. because we're not having the turnover because people can't move out of social well, it's the housing. Same, it's different variation of the bed blocking that we have in the NHS, right? It is, it's true, because if you can't move on from it, you don't allow new people to come in to get that support. So we need more of a through fare and more of the ability for people to move on into different forms of housing. And that's become really tough recently. And what does this all mean ultimately? Is it simply all about money or are there other structural things that could also help? I think it's help? joined up services as well and understanding that, you know, most people, if you're talking about rough sleeping, Andrew, most people have got multiple problems that they need to have addressed. So they've got those different challenges, not one thing. So it's joined up services. But there are a lot of specialist organisations that are brilliant out there that do this. But as housing associations... We've always been there to provide that move-on support, even if we don't provide specialist support when people are ready to move on, and that's proved more and more difficult. Mm. So we need more housing, we need more joined-up support for people, and the will. When the will is there, you know, we've done it before. Different cities have done it because they've got those programmes. And at the moment, that sort of ability to eat or to heat is real, and we are seeing people who could be giving up their tenancies because they just can't survive. So as housing associations, we are providing support to a lot of those people to try and retain their tenancies so we don't make this problem worse as well. Geeta Nanda, thank you very much for coming in. Fantastic to see you. You can get in touch with Metropolitan Thames Valley Housing on Migration Foundation and any of the other things that Geeta's been talking about. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon. You can check out any previous episodes on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, all of our channels. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon.